The advice and opinions expressed by the host of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. The Center for Autism and Related Disorders advises working with a board-certified behavior analyst who has experience with autism before starting any intensive behavioral intervention. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. Welcome to Autism Live. I'm Shannon Penrod. We're webcasting to you live from the Center for Autism and Related Disorders headquarters in Tarzana, California. So thrilled to be here with you on this Thursday morning. I know a lot of you have had a great deal of snow and a great deal of winter, but we, we hope that you're digging out, that you're staying warm, and that you're here to join us because we're going to be talking about autism for the next two hours live, and we're going to take it on from a 360-degree perspective, try to look at all the different angles here, how we make sense of the things going on in our life so that we understand them, we can get the most progress, and that we can have the most fruitful, happy, and productive lives possible, right? That's what it's all about. It doesn't matter whether you're a parent, teacher, practitioner, working with an individual on the autism spectrum. We know that your hopes and dreams for them are that they meet the most potential that you can possibly find for them, or whether you yourself are on the autism spectrum and you're looking for answers. There are so many resources that are out there and we want to connect you to them. This entire show is meant to be interactive. Emily's going to show you some of the different ways that you can participate in the show, because really that's what this is all about. We want you to tell us your thoughts, your ideas, give us your questions, and have a dialogue with us about autism. So I'll remind you that autism-live.com is our homepage. You can go there and find a great deal of information there. Our blog, our connection to our blog is there, but also there's a desktop with a computer screen. If you click on the triangle on the computer screen, you can be watching the live show or the most recently recorded live show. To the side, there's a lovely little white box. You just put your cursor there and type and hit enter and it will show up here on my screen with about a minute, minute and a half lag. And the thing that's wonderful about this is it's a great way for you to interact with us. It's open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, even when the show isn't live. So it, you can tune in, watch on our homepage, and if you have a question about something or you know that today we're gonna have some amazing experts on the show, you guys have already written in some questions, uh, for our doctors that are going to be on the show today, things that you want to have answered. I love that. But also you can give us suggestions about things that you want to see on the show or just let us know what's happening. Sometimes you just need a place to vent and not feel like you're in this alone. And let me assure you, you're not. I am an autism mom, and I always like to start by, by saying that because I'm not an autism expert, right? I, let's, let's not be mistaken about that. I'm an autism mom. My son was diagnosed at the age of two and a half, and what I knew about autism at that point, oh my goodness, it, it's embarrassing, right? And on this journey, I've met so many people people who have helped me so I didn't have to reinvent a wheel I didn't have to feel like I was alone 
did I sometimes feel like I was alone? Yeah, I really did. But I, I know now, looking back, I, I was in great company and that all I had to do was reach out at any time and there were, there were supports and resources available for me. And by the way, a lot of the times, just like here, this support and resource for you is available for free. There is no cost associated with this and you can ask our doctors questions. You can ask me to connect you with people in your area. That's all free, right? We love that. So that's what we're about here. I hope you'll participate. And not only that, pay it forward, right? Uh, years ago, I got the best information that helped me to ensure that my son got the help that he needed. And, and I remember saying to that mom, how am I ever gonna repay you? And she said, Shannon, you're not gonna pay me. You're gonna pay it forward. That's what we do in the autism community. And that's part of what this show is, is my, uh, you know, I mean, there are many things going on here, but part of it for me is this is an ability for me to be able to pay it forward. And so if you get good information here, fabulous, pay it forward to somebody else. Tell them about the show or tell them about the information that you got here so that they can be hooked up too. I always like to say, si se puede, we can do this. We absolutely can do this. So I'm looking forward, loving the questions that you guys have sent in already, and I'm looking forward to what you guys send in in the next few minutes. But we always like to start the show with a little warm up. We call this the jargon of the day. <clears throat> This is when we take on one of those terms, uh, whether it's a word, a phrase, or an acronym that the experts will throw around and say, oh, well, you just need to do this, as if everyone uses these terms every day, right? And before you started on your autism journey, you never heard of this before. <laughs> now it has to become a part of your personal lexicon. And you can't do that all overnight with all the terms. So we just take it one little bit, one word, phrase, acronym a day, and try to make sense of it and give you the actual definition and give you a working definition. So today is one of those great terms. You're going to hear people talking about it and probably even today some of our experts are going to use this term and you go, okay, but what does it mean? And what I'm talking about is NET. Yeah, it looks like net. First time I saw this in print, I was like, what, we're getting like a badminton net? What are we talking about here? We're talking about a basketball net? What is this net that they're talking about having to do with autism? But you'll hear people People say N-E-T. Oh, you might want to use N-E-T to work on that. Great. Annette, what are we talking? Uh, so our actual definition, N-E-T stands for natural environment training. Okay, that's what the NET stands for. It's training and generalization of skills within the child's natural environment. Fabulous, but if you don't know what generalization is, you're really not that much closer to understanding what this is. So let's take a look at our working definition. Our working definition is training and generalization of skills within the child's natural environment. That doesn't help us anymore, does it? What we're talking about in NET is really having it be something that's occurring in real life, in real space. So for instance, I'm standing in line at the ATM and I've got my child with me, right? I'm in the natural environment and I can fuzz out in that moment and be thinking about the 85 gazillion things that I got to think about within a given day. And my child, I can allow him to fuzz out and be thinking about all the gazillion things that he's got going on in his brain. And, and I can just go up and use the ATM and get the cash back and, and go on with my life, right? Or 
I can say this is a teaching opportunity. And while we're in the natural environment, I'm going to look at him. And, we're, and usually natural environment is really driven by the child. We're not trying to put things on them, but we're, we're interested in what they're now, you know, you can find ways to connect with a child so that you know, you've got things to work on. And maybe, you know, maybe that means that I, I pull out my ATM card and I hand it to my child, right? And see what he does with it, right? And depending on the child's skills, maybe I'm gonna use that, that moment, that teaching opportunity to talk about the fact that the ATM card is a rectangle. And we're gonna work on a rectangle and and then then I might say, let's look around and, and look at the buttons on the ATM. What shape are they? Oh, those are squares. Um, and oh, can you see any triangles? And and he can look for triangles uh, that are you know all over the environment, right? But it's happening in real time in a real situation. That's a little contrived for uh, an NET moment, but it's a great teaching opportunity. By the way, there are 85 gazillion things depending on what the child's skill level is that I can wor be working about then. Maybe I give him a math problem about, hey, you know, we're gonna go um, to the grocery store and we're gonna buy $25 worth of groceries and then we have to go to this place and we have to pay this thing, which is $10, and I can only take money out uh, in 20, so how how much money am I going to have to take out, right? Um, everything is a teaching opportunity, but usually with NET, we're striving to have it be something that is driven by the child. So if the child is, uh, you know, let's say that they're they're kicking their their foot on the sand, then you know maybe I would kick my foot on the sand too, and and see if we can't get an interaction going. And if he shows an interest in drawing in the sand, then I show an interest in drawing in the sand. But I want it to be educational. It's just not just mirroring what the child's doing at some point maybe I'm working on getting the child to vocalize and so if he draws something in the sand I might draw over and add to the line and look at the child get the child to look at me so I've got joint attention going and and I might make something that he doesn't like in the sand so that he says hey don't do that right and then I can reward him and say you know it's so good when somebody does something you don't like and you say hey don't do that it's all these things that are happening in the natural environment it's kind of the antithesis of when we talk about DTT DTT is when you've really contrived a moment where you've set it up and you're going to isolate a moment that you're going to teach a new skill but eventually with a DTT, you gotta take it out into the natural environment. I always think about when we would go to a store, we would work on greetings and salutations at home, right? And we would work on it in a very DTT environment of, you know, somebody does this, you say this, you get the reward. Boom, that's greetings and salutations, fabulous, you did it, wonderful. But then we would go out to the store and we'd be at the checkout line and the, the woman who's running the cash register would say to my son, uh, how old are you? sweetie right and at, at, in the beginning my son would 
would be like, uh, and not say anything to her. Um, but we would take that opportunity and I might prompt him, what do you say when someone asks you how old you are? Um, or I just say, you know, tell her how old you are or tell her that you're four, right? Even before he, you know, depending on how, what level I had to prompt to get the answer. But it was in the natural environment, right? Um, and we want to make sure, even in that natural environment, that we're reinforcing the correct responses, but really finding things that are practical. And especially with our older kids, um, we're really working on things with, with an eye to NET, natural environment training. It's happening, real stuff. Um, but when you're building a skill in to begin with, DTT is still a very powerful tool. You really, to do good, powerful quality ABA, you gotta find a good mix of these two things together, right? NET, natural environment training, it's fabulous and used correctly it can be an incredible, incredible tool. Okay, we not only have our jargon of the day, we always start the morning with a question of the day. And we love it when you guys respond on our Facebook. We think it's a wonderful opportunity to check in with you guys. And for you, I love it when you guys start talking to each other on the Facebook page. That really warms my heart. So, uh, you know, we have all kinds of experts that appear on the show and and talk about things and frequently they talk about you know what what do the parents want what 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 are parents looking for what are teachers looking for what are individuals on the spectrum looking for and i you know i love when dr phil says you have to name it to claim it so here it is what kind of autism program do you wish existed and believe me at some point somebody will take a look at that that has the ability to make things happen right so sky's the limit here what are you wishing for are you a parent who has as a teenager who is in school and you're really wishing for an autism program that happened in the afternoon that was social and built job skills for your child, is that what you're wishing for? Or are you somebody who has a two and a half year old who has to work your job and you want quality ABA therapy but you would want to bring your child to a center to have them interacting with other children and getting ready for school but having that social interaction with an ABA base to it so that your child's getting their therapy, getting that social interaction, and getting ready for school. You know, these things do exist, few and far between, right? Not in enough places, but is there something else? What What is it that you would love? What kind of program do you wish existed? You know, let's wish it into existence, but first you gotta say what it is, and then I'll make sure that it gets to people who have abilities to make programs happen. All right, is that a deal? All right, we also always have a topic of the week, and our topic this week, I love it. It's one of our favorite four-letter words here at Autism Live, it's hope, because you have to have hope, right? And we're gonna be talking about this today and, and some of the realities that come with hope, right? Because hope isn't just, uh, it's not enough to just wish, right? But we, but we have to be able to dream, and then we have to be able to put legs on those dreams and make them uh, at least closer to fruition, even if we can't make them come completely to fruition. You have to have hope or, you know, who wants to get up in the morning? I can't, if I don't have hope, I can't get up in the morning. So we, we hold our hope dearly and we're going to keep showing you, this is feel good February here at Autism Live. Uh, it's, 
the the month that statistically has the least amount of light so we all get to feeling like uh <laughs> you know really i gotta get up again and what am i getting up for happens to all of us but that's when hope needs to kick in and sometimes it just takes that inspirational story you see something you go right right this is an amazing journey that we're on and there's all kinds of good things on this journey it's not all negative right because in February, it can seem like that. It doesn't matter what community you belong to. Okay, so some of the different things that we have going on here on the show today. I love Thursdays. In just a little while, we're going to be joined by Dr. Adele Nadowski. We call that segment Real Progress with Dr. Adele. And she is going to be talking about uh, a lot of different things with us. And I have a couple of questions that I'm going to have her ans- ask answer that you guys have written in. Um, but we're also going to be talking with her about tracking progress. And if that makes you break out into hives, then you're in good company because I'm with you on this. The whole idea of tracking progress. I am not somebody who loves a graph. I don't, my, my son's in fifth grade right now. And so much of the math is about graphing and it gives me a headache, makes me a little nauseous. I have to be honest. Um, but so much of what we're going to do, if we're trying to see progress. And by the way, this isn't just autism, right? Uh, my husband just lost a whole bunch of white And, you know, when I look at what is he doing that's making that happen, part of it is, is that he's tracking the progress and he's tracking it on a regular basis saying, you know, I did this and this is what happened and I did this and this is what didn't happen. And so he's tracking progress. And, and I hear from him some weeks, they'll say, you know, I just don't think I did a good job this week. And then he's lost more weight and that reinvigorates him to, you know, want to do more. I'm, so impressed with my husband, what he has been doing. But tracking progress is key to knowing whether what you're doing is working. And it's also important to continue to give you that regular dose of hope or to say to you, it's time to change. This isn't working. Um, Really, really remarkable. So we're going to talk about how we do it as parents. It's fun. Uh, we Normally, we used to do Funding Friday, so now it's Funding Thursday. We're going to talk about some different things that we can do to access funding. And I found out something new yesterday because a viewer had written in um, that made me very hopeful. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. And then in the second hour, we have the amazing Dr. Jonathan Tarbox is going to be with us for Science Beat. And with Dr. Tarbox today, we're going to be asking him about why do some kids make more progress than others? And what should you do if you're not seeing the progress that you had hoped for? What can you change? Because we don't want to change everything. We don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Um, but how do we change things so that we can get to the good stuff, the progress? Really important day. Quite thrilled about how the show is shaping up. And we've got some little feel-good stories in between as well. We're going to take a break and we're going to be back more with Autism Live after these messages. Hi, I'm Ryan with Autism Research Group. We study ways to improve the lives of kids with autism. One of those ways is teaching safety skills, such as what to do if they get lost. We hit the streets to find out if anybody knows the correct answer on how to teach a kid what to do if they get lost. You're teaching a child. What to do if they get lost. Yeah, you're trying to make them independent so they have the skills. Gotcha, okay. Well, give them a compass. Codename's good idea, Centurion. We always have this whistle. Um, 
Oh, I'd also out, tell totally. the kid, I tell the kid, don't get scared. It's all you're gonna be all right, man. This is just the world. You're this is planet Earth. You're at home here. As long as you're on planet Earth, you're at home. As long as you're on planet Earth, you're home. This guy's a genius. With that flawless logic, he just solved our homeless problem. And as for the unique sounding whistle, although very cool, it'll probably only work if you're in close proximity. And a compass. I have her call me. Yeah, she doesn't have a phone. Parents are like, you're too young, you don't need a phone. Establish some sort of like meeting place. What if they can't find a meeting place? Because sometimes Ooh. the kids get nervous when they get lost. Yeah. Like a backup plan. Well, like well, plan B. Yeah, I don't know. No, not really. Let them go and find a new kid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got a different one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's not much you can do. There is I stuff like... you can do. I... That's right, there is stuff you can do. In 2012, myself, along with my colleagues, Dr. Jonathan Tarbox and Dr. Adele Nadowski, published a study in the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis on teaching kids what to do when they get lost. The study demonstrated how three simple things, rules, role-playing, and praise, were effective in establishing these help-seeking behaviors. The benefit of this method is it doesn't require the child to have a cell phone or to have to locate a meeting place, which might be difficult if they're in a place like Disneyland. So once again, our method included rules, role-playing, and praise. Let's head back outside and learn about some of these rules. They should yell out loud. Can't find my mom, my mom, help me. Maybe yell out and scream for help. All right. Scream really loud. Right. And if that don't work, then... I don't know. Well, they could seek help from someone. Find an adult. Yeah, go to a vendor, you know, and say I'm lost. Or... Find an adult, like a police officer, or a fireman, or an employee in the store, and tell them, and maybe they can help you contact your parent. It really is that simple. You don't need to get your kid a cell phone. You don't need to establish a meeting place that they might not be able to find when they're lost and panicking. And you definitely don't need to give them a compass. All your kid has to do is three things. First, yell mom or dad real loud. Two, if that doesn't work, find an employee. And then third, tell the employee they're lost. If they can't locate an employee, then tell them to find a mother with children because that's probably the safest person to approach. I'm not saying that most men are predators, but most predators are men. That is a fact. I've read it in a fortune cookie. All right, so you've gone over the rules with your kid and you've quizzed them and they're able to tell you the correct responses so they understand the rules, but is that enough? How do you know they're gonna perform correctly in a real world setting? You need to get out there and find out if they can actually do it. So you'd go over the rules and tell them like, do this, do that, but how would you know if they actually knew what to do? If you wanted to shoot a basketball and I just told you, oh, when you shoot a basketball, do this, this, and this. I never, never practice. You never practice. Yeah, so it doesn't matter how many times we go over the rules or how well you can repeat them back to me. It's not going to change until you get on the court and practice. Maybe do uh, like a, you know, a little skit with them. Like a role play. Like... Role play. Yeah. Your child, you're lost in the toy aisle. Okay. What do you do? I'm an attendant walking around. <laughs> I'm lost. I don't know where my mom is. And then once you practice, you just like praise them, give them feedback, like good job, you did it. Yes, this woman wins the prize for best comment. She pointed out the most important part of learning, reinforcement. Now, in our study, we used praise, but for your kid, you might have to use something else. You might have to buy them a treat, a toy, take them to their favorite restaurant where they can eat unhealthy food and run around and climb through plastic tunnels that have the unmistakable scent of urine and then play games spending $20 to get a plastic little spider ring that they will eventually lose in a ball pit. The point is, you need to reward your child for correctly demonstrating what you've been teaching them. Okay, I'm gonna call her. 
Hello, your child. Ryan, I wish this was missing. Hey guys. Woohoo! Yay! So you tested it out I'll in the store <laughs> to make sure I knew it. I had the rules. Yes. We role played it. And you made sure I knew it. And then, like, you said, good job. And all that. Now we're good to go. We're good to go. All right. Done? High five right there. Yeah. So there you have it. Give your child the rules, get out there and practice, and reward your child for responding correctly. For more information, please visit us online at autismresearchgroup.org. I'm Ryan Bergstrom. Thanks for watching. Yes, ding. No. <laughs> yes, this woman wins the first. Yes, this woman. Yes, this woman wins the best. Yes, this woman wins the first place. Yes, this woman. Why can't I say what? Yes, this woman wins. What's the line? Yes. We're laughing. Uh, that, of course, was Ryan Bergstrom, and uh, he, we'll have to have Ryan back on the show. Ryan is a very funny young man and a very talented uh, ABA practitioner. I've mentioned before that he was one of the he was the second therapist to ever come to my door to treat my child, and uh, he not only was he the second person, but whenever I talk about that that moment in time when I really got it, uh, because my child was hitting his head against the floor, and it, there was a therapist that was about to leave and the therapist said I'm not going anywhere I'm going to talk you through this whole thing it was Ryan Bergstrom yeah so uh, Ryan has quite the history with us and you know imagine he looks really young now but uh, seven years ago he looked he, like a kid he looked like a teenager <laughs> coming to my door and I thought oh what is this teenager mm, really he's gonna help me with my child mm, okay and he did uh, so he, amazing amazing young man but of course I'm, I'm sitting here laughing with Dr. Adele Nadowski, and we welcome her to the show for this segment that we call Real Progress with Dr. Adele. Thank, Thank you for you. being here. <laughs> and uh, what a great start that we had a nice laugh. You know, we're calling this Feel Good February, and we're, we're focused. Nice. Isn't that nice? I love it. And we're focusing on stories of hope and inspiration and, and some, you know, fun things. Because, hey, fun things still happen after somebody in your family is diagnosed with autism. There's still plenty of things to laugh about. There's still plenty of things to be hopeful and to enjoy. So we're doing Feel Good Friday as up against the weather. <laughs> we're going, hey, Actually, weather. Actually, it feels it. good to get rain around here. That's a feel good. Well, but the rest of the country is like <laughs> shoveling hundreds of pounds of snow. Yeah, that's <laughs> so, true. Uh, I do yeah. feel bad for them. Yes, I feel bad for them, too. Uh, somebody last night posted on Facebook. They said, I don't want to rub it in, but while all of you are pouring salt on your sidewalks, we're pouring that on our margar margaritas in Arizona. And I thought, ooh, that's harsh. I know. Uh, <laughs> that's really, them's fighting words for I people saw, back east. I saw a harsh one um, that said, don't worry everybody, we're all in this together. We're over here dealing with our 73 degree weather. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We're I, not all in this together, unfortunately. Uh, but I grew up in upstate New York and, and all I have to say is I moved to California. <laughs> <laughs> For a and, reason. And for a reason. And then and then I forgot for a while and I went back to teach at a college in upstate New York that gets snow galore. And I remembered why I moved to Southern California and I moved back to Southern California. So I know everybody can't do that, but 
um, I made those choices for a reason. Yeah. But I and I do know what some of you I can remember what some of you are going through. It's it's a little crazy the weather thing. But in any case, uh, we're not going to talk all about weather today because we have to talk about making progress. And Dr. Nadowski is a great person to talk about that with. She is an amazing professional in the field of autism. She was one of the co-creators of Skills, which we talk about here on the show, and and really a great resource for all of us as parents. Uh, she has a wonderful way of looking at things, a wonderful sense of humor, and you're very human with parents. You've, you've helped make me a better parent, right? <laughs> I mean, you know that. I've told Thanks. you that a, a gazillion times. Um, so thrilled to have her here because we're going to take on one of the toughest subjects there is. It's still the nut that I'm trying to crack. Not this one. Uh, tracking progress. Uh, and you like graphs. Is this correct? Anybody who is a board-certified behavior analyst um, supposedly loves graphs. <laughs> <laughs> Which, to me, that's just, that's just crazy talk. I just I go, know, how I can know. you love a graph? Uh, I don't. I don't pretend to get it. I believe in everybody. You know, uh, should should like different things. So I welcome. You know, the fact that you like them, um, and it's great for my kid that you love graphs. I, but I don't get it. And yet, as a parent, eventually I'm going to have to warm up to them. Graphs are really satisfying because when okay, imagine you're doing your gardening and you're planting seeds and you're watering it and you're doing these things every day to try to grow something. Yeah. When you finally see something come through, isn't that where you feel your satisfaction? It's yes. very satisfying. Yes. So a graph is a way of seeing the outcome of what you're doing. Okay. So if we're doing an intervention with a child, we don't know if it's really working if we're just going by our subjective experience. Especially because we're not going to be the only ones with the child all day, every day. So let's say you have a team of three or four therapists and they all work with the child. One of them maybe gets zero challenging behaviors and they're all happy woohoo and then some of these other therapists are getting really high amounts and nobody can seem to agree if it's working or not or whatever. So we graph it and we graph it per session per therapist and we can even see patterns like maybe every time Susie does therapy it's at zero and it's really not a problem but every time Teresa does therapy it's really high and it helps with training so you go okay so this person's being inconsistent with how they're implementing the behavior intervention plan so we need to retrain her. And one of the things that you have taught me about executive function skills is that when you have a long-term goal, you have to evaluate on a regular basis whether you're on track. Yeah. And you have to manipulate your circumstances because, and it's just like, I, I remember years ago somebody telling me when a plane takes off from Los Angeles to go to New York, they know where they're going, but at, every, at regular intervals they have to change the course heading because of the wind to make sure that they stay on track. If they just said, well, we're getting in a plane and we're going from Los Angeles to New York and never check to make sure where they were, the likelihood is they would end up in Florida. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And if you're at a certain point now and you have a goal of a certain place you're going to be, don't you want to know if you're on target for that goal or not? Otherwise, you're wasting time. And I think the one thing I can say that will probably make any parent who's kind of doubtful about graphs is um, that what graphs keeps you from doing is two possible really bad things. One is um, continuing a bad treatment that's not working for too long. Okay. So we're doing this treatment and it's not making it better and we're doing it for three months and the behavior is still occurring at high rates. Right. And we say, but we have a treatment in place. Well, right. we shouldn't allow that to have occurred for three months. That's really bad. 
And it's if important to realize this is, our kids are individuals. So it isn't one size fits all, even in the treatment. You have to make adjust, adjustments. Right. It's possible to say this worked for somebody else and it wouldn't work for your child. Right. Okay. So if we had been graphing that, we would have seen earlier on that it wasn't working and we wouldn't have let it go on for so long. Right. So that's the first problem is you continue to do a bad treatment for too long. The other opposite problem is that you discontinue a good treatment too early. Right, because it was helping, but you didn't recognize that it was helping. You thought, oh my gosh, t the tantrum today was so horrific, we're going to change the plan. Right. And I know people like this, they'll even do it with like vitamins or like little supplements or things they're doing like, oh, the kid's whacked out, give them more, and they're up and down with their dose and they're not staying on track. And they just need to try one thing consistently for a while and graph it and see really what are the patterns. Right. When you're constantly changing everything day to day, like, oh, the behavior intervention plan's not working, we're going to do this today instead. And then, oh, it didn't work today, so now we're going to do this tomorrow. Okay. And you're constantly changing everything, nothing is consistent. Okay. And you don't know if any one of those things would eventually have worked. Because remember, there's principles of behavior that occur, like for example, extinction sometimes. Yes. It creates a burst initially. So someone sees that and goes, oh, it's not working, and they abandon it too soon. Yeah. Or um, it could just be a subjective thing where in reality, if you were to look at the graph, you'll see, oh, there were less today than there were yeah. yesterday and the day before. It just seemed worse to me because I was in a bad yeah. mood or because it seemed more severe the way it went down or something like that. Yeah, imagine with tantrums, if your child is tantruming 10 times a day, your psychological makeup is in a place where you're tired and, and you're thinking, I don't see the light at the end of the tunnel, and you put a behavior intervention plan in place and you, your tantrums are still happening and you feel like, I, I can't handle it, this is getting worse, right? But if you were to look at the graph to see that you went from 10 times to four times, yeah, which is significant improvement, and if you hung in a little bit longer, you'd be <sighs> down to two and then down to one and then gone. Right. But yeah, okay, so I get it why tracking things is important. I, I, you know, I'm convinced th that it's important, but the reality of it is another thing entirely. So I want to pause for a second, and then when we come back, we're going to ask Dr. Nadowski to help those of us that are parents, because, and our jargon today was NET. So when we're doing things after the therapists have left, and, and I've got some stuff that I'm working on with Jem right now, and I know that I would be doing a better job if I was tracking progress, but I really, the nuts and bolts of how to do it, when to do it, and the logistics of how am I interacting with him and taking notes. I can't get past it. So uh, maybe I'm not the only one. I, maybe, if you are having trouble with that thought too, you can write in and share your thoughts. But Dr. Nadowski is going to help me and help you in the process. So stick with us. Hello, activist. Let's talk about step eight. State your intention. Conceive it believe it, achieve it. Author Napoleon Hill wrote that 100 years ago. The Power of Positive Thinking. Norman Vincent Peale wrote that 60 years ago. See, practicing positive focused thought has been around a long time, long before The Secret came about. That's because practicing positive focused thinking really works. Think about when you drive somewhere in your car. You don't just go around in circles. You have a destination, right? I mean, sure, there's gonna be speed bumps and detours along the way, but you know where you're going. State what you want to achieve. Say it aloud, write it down. 
I have post-its on my computer. One says, get Wyatt all the treatment and therapy he needs to reach his full potential. Step two, help other families. The focus part is really important because I realize that in this lifetime, I'm not gonna be elected president or become a rock star, but I'm doing okay on those first two steps. Live in a state of knowing you will reach your goals for you and your child. Until next time, keep the faith. Welcome back to Autism Live. We're here with Dr. Adele Nadowski, and we call this Real Progress with Dr. Adele. She's just talked to us about how important it is to track progress. It's going to make us more effective, more efficient, whether you're an ABA provider or you're a parent. It helps to guide you and helps helps you to make good choices and, and stay motivated, I think, too. And, and I've said to her that as a parent, this is the thing that I still struggle with, the logistics of how does a parent do this. So help me out how how does a parent take and track progress when we're doing something with our child well the first thing that they need to do is plan <laughs> so well, see that's where I'm <laughs> off the rails already okay have a plan in place so if there's a certain behavior you're looking to track figure out what that is and then um, figure out how you're going to track it and come up with something that's on paper or that you have some sort of device or something so um, and come up with simple ways don't okay. have these elaborate data sheets with too many things you're tracking or whatever if right. you know you're not going to be able to do it. Right. Um, so a simple thing where all you have to do is circle Y for yes or N for no or a simple um, thing where they get like a plus or a minus or something like that and where you don't have to track every single thing or okay. whatever will be the best. So I could do this on a piece of paper that I make that just has Y's and N's for yes and no or I could even potentially do it on my phone or I, I was going to say like people who don't want to carry around paper pencil right. they could put it on a clipboard that might make it more official okay and then they have that clipboard just around and every time that they do it they just walk over and do the it could be a tally whatever it is that you're tracking um, but uh, if you don't have that, you're the type of person who always has a phone on you, you could definitely do it on your phone as well. Okay. Uh, shall I go into my, the example of what yeah. we have going on right now? Okay, so uh, my son's handwriting is atrocious, and there are lots of reasons why it's atrocious. We, we discovered later on that he has an eye tracking problem, which we've addressed that now, but his handwriting is atrocious. And we were considering just not even dealing with it and just having him type on things, and, and now we've decided to go back and get it under control. He's in fifth grade. It seems really late to do that. And so about a week and a half ago, we started this intervention. At first I had him just on regular paper. We had to go back further. We had to get the huge ruled with the dash in the middle and go back to the example of some letters go up, you know, the example of there's the sky, which is the top part. Underneath the dash is the grass and then there's the dirt. And the, he knows letters and where they're supposed to go but he doesn't do it and the spacing between the letters because he just will write a bunch of letters and you have no idea where a word starts and where it ends okay. nobody can read it right so right now we're chunking we're saying we're not going to worry about everything else under the sun he's on the big paper all we're concerned about is if a letter is supposed to go into the sky or into the grass or into the dirt that it's in the right place other than that we don't care 
for this moment in time, and there has to be an appropriate space between each one of the words. And I, we've been doing this now for like a week and a half, and the other night I, I wanted to set my hair on fire. I wanted to move to a, like, you know, Fiji and not leave a forwarding address. I was so done and over the whole thing. And then I, I said to Dr. Nadowski, and I, of course I'm not tracking progress, we're a week and a half in, and, and he was doing, and he has to copy a paragraph every night. And he was doing it last night, and my husband walked by and went, it's like a miracle. It's so much better. I can't even believe how much better his handwriting is. And I looked at him, and then I looked at the paper, and I went, gosh, it really is so much better. And this is a perfect example of I should have been tracking the progress. It probably would have been cool for him to see, because I think he's real beat up uh, emotionally about how bad his handwriting is. And and yet, I don't even know how to begin to track yeah. progress on that. Like, what, what, would I, how, what would my sheet look like? What would I count? Right. So um, you could do something like, um, there's a couple options, obviously. Like you were talking about the letters being up in the sky versus the dirt versus in the grass or whatever. So mm -hmm. uh, I don't know how bad it is, like if, you have, or if you're having to look at every letter, but you could do something like um, a point system where, you know, if everything is um, perfect, then it's a full five points or something okay. like that. If... Um, there's this many to this many things wrong. It's four. You know what I mean? Okay. Something like that. And so then you I have just to rank it. So do you a just, ranking. That would be one option. You just talk to the teacher in me because as a teacher, we always, when we're going to grade something, we have to have a rubric, <laughs> right? Yeah. The rubric is the thing that tells you what you're looking for. Yeah. So I need to make a rubric for exactly. this. Exactly. It's like some kind of ranking system or something. Okay. Um, or uh, what you could do is just... Um, you could t one thing you could start doing is timing him, because yes, not fluency only is the next thing. Yeah, not only does he need to be able to write uh, nicely, but it can't be too slow or whatever. Right. So see how long it takes him to write the paragraph, and then maybe go in and just uh, find out how many errors. Okay. And then just track errors, and so then we'll just see errors decrease over the time. Okay. That would be assuming like the paragraphs are around the same length usually. Right. And even um, now, even though I'm not working on the, the, the fluency part of it yet, I will be eventually, so I should be timing it now to be able to, to look at it and say it's taking him 15 minutes to write it now, and then probably before we even start working on the fluency, I, I noticed last night it was infinitely quicker. Yeah, if you, if you tracked both how long it takes and the number of errors, you could almost um, basically see errors decrease, hopefully go down to like zero to nothing or whatever, mm -hmm. and then um, see the length of time also decreasing. And it might be nice to track both just because you might find that, um, you know, one thing's getting better and the other one's not or something. Okay. And so that might make you feel better because maybe you're focused on how it looks, but in reality he can ride a little bit faster and is a little bit, yeah. has a little bit less errors. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So, but just whatever it is, keep it simple. And like as a parent, um, if there's something you want to track, anything where you can just tally something is going to be easy, like errors. Um, you can use golf counters that you just have in your pocket. Can you just follow me? Or they have watches <laughs> where you can just do it. Uh, um, that's a great idea. That never even occurred to me. Okay. You know what? I, it's a great, I said, can you just come with me throughout there's my There's watches life? that are golf counters. You can just wear it around never your wrist. and then occurred to me. If there's like some behavior you're trying to increase, like let's say you're supposed to make a certain number of social interactions a day every time he randomly does one, like you're talking about the natural environment kind of stuff. Exactly. Then just, and just keep going about your business and then right. at the end of the day mark it down, however many it was or something. Oh, <sighs> see.
see, this is why we need to have experts like you guys on the show, because that gives me hope, because it has felt overwhelming it to me. It needs to be I, simple, whatever yeah, it is. Yeah, it has to be simple. It has to work with whatever. And different things, obviously, when I'm sitting at the table with him, I can have a sheet next to me. When we're standing in line at the bank, I can't. But if I had something, you know, on my phone or on my wrist that I could just, you know, keep tallies of things. But but first, I have to know what it is I'm tracking. I another think that's thing, part of the problem. Another thing some people have done is they'll put beans in their pocket and move one bean to the other side. Wow. So by the end of the day, however many are in that pocket is the thing that matters or whatever. Okay. So there's a lot of different little things like that. And and one of the things that I, that I go back to um, is that if you're working on a lesson in skills, it's automatic. There's a way for you to track there and it'll graph it for you, which is a brilliant thing. Yeah. It tells you, you know, essentially this is what you're keeping track of. Because I do think that that's part of my problem is that I hadn't taken the time, as you said, first step planning, hadn't taken the time to plan and say, How you're going to track here it. is what I'm tracking. Yeah. And how how am I going to track if it's going to be significant to me yeah. in terms of being the person who's making the decision about when to change things? Because eventually he has to go back to the paper that's thinner without the dashed line. Right. And and so I, you know, yeah. if I'm tracking how well he's doing on this, and you it will can help maybe me to make have that some sort of a decision making thing in place. Like I will move to the regular size lines once he can do his. He gets this certain mm -hmm. score or something like that consecutively across three different times, you know, or something like yeah. that. And then if you have that in place, then you actually have like a decision in place as to when you're going to move down to smaller lines too. Okay. So yeah, you have to figure out what the steps are, what you're teaching and what the criterion will be for moving from one step to the next. And it should be based on progress. It shouldn't just be based on, oh, I think I'm going to go to the next step now. Okay. Uh, you so, can also backstep too, by the way. Keep that in mind. Yes. If you're moving forward and then all of a sudden the kid's failing or whatever, um, you might do something like if they fail three times in a row, we backstep to the back one because you might have just moved forward too quickly or something. Well, you might need an intermediate step. Yeah that you hadn't even thought of, you just jumped too big or something like that. Well, that's what happened when I went to the paper with the lines, because I saw, we, we, you know, like two days in a row, I saw it, we're not going to get anywhere because he he really isn't uh, motor playing. Now, somebody just wrote in and asked me, have I considered the possibility that Jem has dysgraphia? I don't know what dysgraphia is, so I'm going to look that up during the break. We're going to come back, and we've got a bunch of questions that you guys have written in for our experts, so we're going to go right to that. A bunch of questions about intensity of therapy that I really, really want to get to. So stick with us more with Dr. Adele Nadowski after these messages. Hi guys, welcome back to Smarty. It's February and for this month we have made a template for you. You can find it on facebook.com slash autism live and this activity works on your child's pincer grasp. So let's get started. The materials you'll be needing are scissors, a hole puncher, a glue stick, shoelace, cardstock, and our template that you can print from facebook.com slash autism live. First, I'm gonna take my template and glue it to cardstock. The reason I'm using a glue stick is so that it doesn't ripple because if you use the wet glue it's gonna make it all lumpy. Once I have my template glued to my cardstock I'm gonna take my scissors and cut out the heart. Now that I have my heart cut out I'm gonna cut out the holes with the hole puncher. This is where your child's gonna take their shoelace and start threading through it. 
Now that I've put all the hole punches through the template, now I'm gonna get my kiddo to come over and take the shoelace and start sewing the outside of the heart. Shoelaces are great because they have the tip already making it easier for the child to thread it through the holes and they come in great different colors and patterns. As you can see, we found some really festive hearts. Here's my completed Valentine. Now it makes sense, right? I love you so very much. <laughs> as you can see, the child has a lot of opportunity to work on their pincer grass and find wool as they sew around the heart. I hope you enjoyed doing this with your child. Until next time, craft on guys. Bye. Can you see me flying by your side? Welcome back to Autism Life. Uh, we're here live. Life. life. Autism life. We're here with autism life because we're living our lives. We're feeling warm and fuzzy about that as well. These uh, are the days of our lives. <laughs> these are the days of our lives. Uh, in any case, we are here with Dr. Del Nadowski, and we call this segment Real Progress with Dr. Del because she helps us to get to progress. We were talking about tracking progress. I gave the example of my son and his handwriting. Somebody wrote in and said, have you considered that Jem might have dysgraphia? And so I had to look that up, and Dr. Nadelsky was helping me uh, know what that was while I was looking it up. And uh, you know what's interesting about the reason why we discovered that my son had a tracking eye pro uh, problem was that on a regular basis I was meeting with Dr. Nadowski as I was reading through the skills curriculum and we got to the um, the motor skills part of skills and there you know it's it got the four different fine motor, gross motor, visual motor and oral motor. Good job. And I oh, please and uh, I learned well from the teacher and uh, but I was confused about the visual motor I said I don't get this I don't know why is this in here what does this have to do with anything it doesn't make sense to me you gave me a great book and I and we had several meetings and talked about what are some of the warning signs that a child might have a visual motor problem and I went hmm I think this is my child. I remember saying that That's to right. you. Yeah. And and you said, okay, well, it's time to get him evaluated. We went through a process with a great doctor um, out here in Los Angeles, and and uh, you know, really kind of leveled me. I felt so horrible because I watched this doctor doing one exercise with him where he had to follow these balls on a there was a gold ball and a silver ball, and he had, to, and my son was sitting in the chair and he was trying so hard and he was pushing with his hands and squinting to try to get his eye to hold steady on this at looking out of the corner of his eye. And the doctor said to me, it's amazing that he can read. Um, wow. Because, you know, he has compensated for this, but he said his handwriting has got to be atrocious, and he's probably having difficulty riding a bike. And I said, oh my goodness, you know. So we've, we've been treating that for two years now, two and a half years, and it's much better. His, his eye problem is correcting itself. Um, and, and as at that point, though, he had already done all the print writing, they started cursive, and my son can write cursive beautifully, beautifully, because the eye problem was taken care of. So we really were like, oh, oh do we take the time to go like back? They taught him print writing before he ever had any. Before he had the ability exercise. to, and then it has just, and we were kind of hoping it would correct itself. We, and I, you know, hemmed and hawed, and we'd had many meetings about it, and I said, and then I talked to somebody like Alex Plank, and Alex Plank says, who cares, everything is on the, on the computer, <laughs> which I think makes great sense, but the case has recently been made to me that um, it's affecting other things. And we need to go back and correct this. And there's a self-esteem issue in the classroom. Um, so we're, we're doing it. 
And, and I said, oh my gosh, it's going to take us forever. And it was said to me, you know, well, if he's 10, if it takes you three years, who cares? You're talking about, you know, devoting like 10 to 15 minutes a day on this and build his self-esteem. And that really is what sold me. So, and, but besides that, as we were looking up dysgraphia and we were talking about it, um, I don't know whether that's the technical name for what Jem has been dealing with, but what we're doing is the exact intervention for it. He yeah. has accommodations in school as it's getting better, and we, we've gone back and we're helping him to work through and process it, and, and apparently that's exactly what you do for dysgraphia. So, um, but thank you for writing that in. I have a new word in my lexicon. See, you've, you've taught me <laughs> jargon today. But I have to go back, Dr. Nadowski, because we've had two questions that have come in in the last 24 hours about how much time do we spend on therapy? This one really moved me this morning. Uh, One of you wrote in, my son was just diagnosed with ASD and I am at a loss of how much therapy is enough. I have read that Autism Speaks recommends 25 hours of professional therapy plus 15 of parent therapy. That's the first time I've heard that equation, um, which is very interesting to me. Uh, But they go on to write, but many ASD parents that I have met via blogs have been very aggressive towards me when I mentioned getting my two-year-old son that amount of therapy. They even say that I should only give him OT, which is occupational therapy, and ST, speech therapy, no ABA. I'm so confused. Why would other parents say that? Can they be right? So I've asked Dr. Nadowski to talk about how much therapy, and then both of us can talk about why you might be hearing that from parents. Um, why why a parent who's who's on a blog and writing may be saying that to you. So yeah. first let's talk about what what amount of therapy is enough. Especially okay. we're talking about, you know, younger kids. Um, yeah. So go ahead. Okay, so um, typically um, the research shows that getting closer to 40 hours a week is best. So at least something more than 25, somewhere around 30 to 40 is best. Obviously what I'm understanding here is that you have a younger child, a two-year-old. Most of that research that I'm referring to um, was done with um, younger kids. So we already know that um, those kind of hours can work with younger kids. But um, I think that where the parents are coming from, probably where they're getting this is um, they're thinking that your son or daughter, I'm not sure son. which it was, okay, it's son. Um, is just too young and won't have the attention span and can't sit for that long and it's inhumane and they should just be allowed to play and hang out and do what little babies and kids do, which I understand that argument completely. Um, to me, my biggest concern would be whether or not um, your son is getting his naps in because that's one of the things when you're younger you need a lot more sleep. So, um, but a lot of kids on the spectrum don't nap. Yeah. Anyways, they have like high levels of energy and they never take any naps. So if that's the case, then you may as well use the hours for the ABA. If um, your son does take naps, I would definitely get the naps in. Um, And then you don't have to have the type of ABA that maybe these parents are thinking it is, which is just sitting at a table doing discrete trial teaching all day long, um, which I would agree that a two-year-old probably is not going to be able to handle that. They're not going to have the attention span for it. So when you're doing ABA though, you're not just doing discrete trials, you're doing a lot of other naturalistic things with with the child. So imagine that if you weren't doing ABA and um, instead your son just had those hours to hang around the house, what would he be doing? And 
during anything that he's doing, um, there's a learning opportunity to be had. So why not have an ABA therapist right there to help him with it? So if he's going to be playing with toys, they could be teaching him how to play correctly. They could be teaching him language skills. If he's going to be um, getting dressed, they could be teaching him how to button and zip and learn all these things that happen in the natural time frame of when someone wakes up until they go to bed. There's a lot of things you can learn throughout all of that. So it's not just sitting down at a table and teaching your ABCs and your one, two, threes. And I and I, I love everything that you said, and I just want to add to that that, you know, we live in a big, wonderful community, and people want to be helpful, and we all feel very passionately, and we want to help other people coming behind us. But I do want to say to all of you that um, keep in mind that things change, and as you're getting parent advice from other parents, you've got to take that into consideration. A uh, great example that I'm going to give you, 35 years ago, my my sister had to have gallbladder surgery and back then what it was and she had just had her first baby and she had to have a gallbladder surgery and what they did then was they pretty much cut you in half she had a scar that went from one side of her stomach to the other and yeah. that's what they did to get your gallbladder out her recovery time was like three months she couldn't hold her baby she was in the hospital for a really long time she had complications and and it was miserable now, I can remember 16 years ago talking to somebody who went to have gallbladder surgery and she was back at work the next day because they, they did uh, it uh, with, the, with the little cameras that went in. So she had two little incisions. They went in and they what they did was they took the gallbladder apart inside her and sucked it out. That was 16 years ago. I have no idea. Getting gallbladder surgery now is probably like a drive-through process, <laughs> right? Um, but it's changed significantly. And what you're going to hear from some parents about ABA, um, it, it's possible that it's just their experience that they had ABA and it was it was not quality ABA that included time for the child to do NET things yeah. and to play and have rapport with the child. Um, it's possible that they're just functioning on old information because now that we're getting earlier diagnoses, we're seeing that if you get started on ABA earlier with a child, they get caught up that much faster. You, you know, I, I think you have to be yeah. mindful, like Dr. Nadowski was saying, about how much the individual child can handle, but no other parent can tell you that. I certainly can't tell you that, what your individual child can handle. Um, but. But we know that ABA is very effective, even with those little guys. Yeah, and I'm girls. just sitting here, it's still beating the same drum. But I'm just thinking, what will your son be doing if he's not doing ABA? Maybe he will go see an OT and an SLP. But what's he going to be doing when he's not doing that? Yeah. And so, um, as opposed to, you know, leaving him to his own devices, where he probably, I'm guessing, doesn't have uh, the best play skills. Um, we could, you know, just let him have play inappropriately, or it could be all on your back to try to figure out how to teach him something. But what about when he's eating? He can learn how to hold utensils. He can, you know, learn how to eat table foods, chew his food. There's so many skills that they could be working on with him they that are just daily skills. life skills. Yeah, they can work on during his downtime, skills. teaching yeah. him how to throw a ball, you know, how to do a puzzle. Um, all these things that will give him things to do besides engaging in 
stereotypy yeah. and other kind of things that a lot of kids on the spectrum do. And let's be honest here. If your child already has a diagnosis at two, it means your child is already behind. Otherwise, they wouldn't have gotten the diagnosis, right? So you're already behind and you're working against the clock now. Yeah. Because if you wait six months, like let's say that your child is, is two and a half now and you're going to wait six months until they're three to start, then your child is going to be that much more behind. There's that much more to catch up. There's yeah. that much longer of therapy they're going to have to do. Yeah, and a lot of our kids, they'll start with their therapy with us. Like let's say they start when they're four. We'll do an assessment to figure out what they're missing, and then we learn all these skills that they, you know, should have gotten from when they were a baby all the way up to when they were four that they're actually behind on. Yeah. And so then we start teaching those things, and we're teaching it now when they're four. Well, then they turn five, and then when they turn five, we not we have a whole another year from four to five that we have to catch up on. Right. So it just gets worse and worse the longer that you wait, and. Um, if you can just figure out what are the things, milestones that um, your son should have by now at his age, then those are the things that people can work on with him. They'll be age appropriate. It's not like someone's going to sit down and teach him, yeah. you know, something way beyond what he should be doing as, at that age. They're going to make it appropriate yeah. to his level. And please understand that I, I'm, I, I don't want to say anything against these other parents that are bloggers. Uh, I mean, a great example, one of my favorite blogs that I love to read, Liz Becker, who her son is 27 years old and just got his own apartment. She's one of those amazing pioneers that, man, she was slogging it out and making things happen for her son when, when other things weren't there. And I respect Liz to the core of my being. And just recently, Liz and I had been in a discussion. I posted something and, and she said, yeah, but you know, something like 75% of uh, adults with autism can't speak. And she said, you know what? Hold on a second. Hold the phone. I haven't checked that statistic in a long time. And she went back and checked the statistic and it's completely changed. That statistic is like so different now. And she said, oh my gosh, this is amazing for me to see this because this says that all that therapy is working. More of our adults are speaking. This is really incredible. Yeah. And I respect her because she is smart enough that she went, wait, I might be wrong on that. That might be an old statistic. Uh, and not everybody has time to check their statistics, right? And, and see how often they change. So just know that those parents might be focusing on something that's a little bit older information and it's up to you as a parent to weed through that and you know I think it's interesting that Autism Speaks is saying 25 hours from a professional and 15 from a parent mm -hmm. um, you know because I think that that's a doable amount and I think that most insurances will cover that but you need to know that the science shows that whatever More way, better. you know, your child needs to have between 30 and 40. And if you can get funding for a professional to do that for you, it's going to be that much easier for you. Yeah. I can't even imagine being a parent and then also being a therapist for my child. Well, I think it would be really rough. I, you know, two nights ago, um, I, if we could have looked at me from Google Earth, it would have been me like contemplating lighting my hair on fire. Well, and my child is doing remarkably well, and I've had you know, tons and tons of help and people, resources that I can go to and say, what am I doing wrong? Yeah. Right. Imagine if I had gone from the time that he was two and a half and hitting his head on the floor, I will tell you, I don't think I could have done it. 
Um, I'd like to think that I would have risen to the occasion. You would have if you had to. Uh, well, you know, but I have so, and we have seen so many parents who have and do, and they have yeah. nothing but my respect. Yeah, but, I agree. You know, because if if that's what you're, if that's what you have, that's what you're going to do. Yeah, I get that, but it's it's remarkably hard. I think we need to be pushing for, you know, I think it's interesting that Autism Speaks is saying, let's go for 25 for the professional, but if you can get 40, do that. <laughs> That's the little asterisk. But I think that um, one thing I'm happy to see about Autism Speaks is that they're trying to say parents should be involved. Absolutely. That's kind of how they're doing it. Absolutely. Because um, it's too easy to say, okay, I'm going to hire these professionals and they're just going to take care of my kid and give my kid back to me when she's fixed or something and, like and that. And we know that doesn't work. So that does um, not work. parents need to be involved because whatever it is that the professional is doing, they're teaching the child new skills. Well, then that they have to share that information with the parents, and then the parents have to work on those now in the natural environment to make sure that they're actually really taught. Because a lot of times a child learns something, but they're only able to do it with their therapist, or they're only able to do it during therapy sitting at the table, or whatever right. it is. They need to be able to do it away from that environment anywhere in the house, outside of the house, with yeah. new people, et cetera. And that's where the parents really need to like come in and... I've got, I've got stuff. two things to add here. One, this parent has written back and said these parents are assuming that because my son appears high functioning, he doesn't need 40 hours. And you know what? I'm so glad you wrote that because that is one of the misconceptions that a lot of our parents that have been in this journey a little bit longer, this is a, a myth that needs to be dispelled. When your child is high functioning, it doesn't mean that they need less hours. It means that they are going to do especially, that they're, they're going to have potentially more skills to be able to access the curriculum that you're going to work on. But it is not a thing just like penicillin. We don't say, well, you're not as sick as the other person, so we're not going to give you the full prescription of the penicillin. We would never do that. Even the kids that are high functioning that are at two and three, statistics have shown, am I, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that those kids still need the same amount of hours. I've, I've heard... Um... I don't know if any research has been done actually isolating the severity of the child. I do because Dr. Tarbox has talked about oh, it. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay cool. I, and I will we'll ask him in the next hour and have him corroborate so that I will make sure that I'm not crazy. Yeah. But because we've had this question before and it's one of the things that I go, no, just because the child is doing well, don't give them less. Well, the thing is, is that... Um, even if they're high functioning, um, you can get them caught up sooner and then you can get, maybe be done with ABA faster. Um, so it's kind of like, do you want to draw it out or do you want to get it over with kind of yeah. a thing? And how fast do you want to get them caught up? Because would you like it, would you like it if they could go to preschool and be um, included in a regular preschool classroom with peers? Or do you want to have to be doing ABA during the preschool time? You know what I mean? It would just Absolutely. be nice to get the ABA kind of happening and great so that then you can start doing more of the peer play and the socialization and other yeah. stuff to get them ready to go to school when they're five for kindergarten. Yeah. It's that get her done, get her done. And somebody else, because we were talking about tracking progress, wrote it in and said, you can set up an Excel sheet on Google Drive and it will be accessible on your phone, tablet, and computer. Put the task in one column and the time in another and the number of attempts or however you want to set it up, but it would be accessible and would sync to your Google Drive file. I love our viewers. That's really cool. That's very cool. Love that. So great idea.
set up the Excel sheet on Google Drive. It's accessible on your phone, tablet. Make your columns for what you want. Fabulous. Yeah. I can't wait to try that. That's cool. All right. We are out of time. We are past time. I kept you way longer than I said <laughs> okay. I was going to keep you, but it was so good. And we have so many more questions. But um, we want to get to the A word. This is an amazing ongoing documentary being made by the Center for Autism and Related Disorders following a little boy who was diagnosed with autism at the age of two and starting that intensive ABA therapy that we're talking about. And I think even in this segment, you're going to see them tracking progress <laughs> where they actually, you know, are taking the sheet and marking down how many, it might be manding that they, they are doing in this particular segment. But this is a two-year-old. And if you have questions about what happens with a two-year-old and, and how they fare from it, I encourage you to watch the A word and skip ahead towards the end and see how amazing that little boy is doing because he's in kindergarten now. And I, I, I just think it's, it tells you everything you need to know about why you should start that therapy as early as possible. He's doing remarkably. So we'll go to the A word. Then when we come back, we're going to be joined by Dr. Jonathan Tarbox, and we're going to answer some more of the questions that you guys have been writing in. But thank you to Dr. Nadowski. We'll look forward to having her back next week. But take a look. This is the A word. Great and awful. Yeah. Yeah, it's great progress and it's hard to get used to. Last Friday was rough for him. At the end of the second week, he had a rough. I think every session was rough for him. Makes you feeling really well. Like I hauled up a green marker to him last night and asked him what color and he said green. Yeah. No prompting. Unprompted. Black and blue and green. He's doing okay. The fact that he'll say colors without us telling him first—that's douche. But he's. He's trying to say everything. He tries to say tangle. There we go. He says cars really well, of course. You say tangle? Oh, yeah. You say Bambi? are okay but um, as long as he's asking us for something instead of having us just give it to him so that requires him to talk even more which book do you want which one Mickey book whoa do you want the Mickey book or the Thomas book which one Jack Riley 
Side, silly. Woohoo! See? Do you see yourself? Yeah. Wow! Oh. Really? Thing we wanted to say to our families. Yeah, so, we say hi. Bye bye. 
Okay, come on, buddy. Welcome back to Autism Live. That was the A word. We've been talking about how much therapy is enough and how much therapy is too much, taking it into consideration when a child is young. Uh, now that we have better diagnosis, we are finding that kids can be diagnosed with autism as early as I've heard people talking about 15 months. And, and so uh, somebody had written in and said, I'm concerned because I want to make sure that I get my child enough, but I don't want to do too much. And I'm hearing a lot from other people parents that 25 hours at, for a child who is two years old is too much. So we've been talking about that. And we were talking with Dr. Adele Nadowski. And she, after the camera was off and we were on to the A word, uh, she said to make sure and remind all of you that while you're doing ABA therapy, it doesn't have to be the only thing that you're doing. So uh, if the, and, and, and the mom had written in and said, their parent had at least written in and said, the child is high functioning. And that's where a lot of people are concerned about uh, that that might be too much ABA therapy. But uh, Dr. Nadowski was saying, you know, it's possible that the child could be going to preschool and having an ABA shadow or, or being out in the environment. You don't just have to be at home and being doing DTT and only ABA. There, there are many other things that you can be doing. It doesn't have to isolate. Uh, I always say, give your program legs. Uh, have, have some ABA therapy happening, maybe perhaps at home, and then take it out into the environment. You can take it to the playgroup uh, and be working on the skills that you need to be working on in, within the playgroup, right? Lots of different ways that you can be doing things. So don't think of it as a thing where you're shut up home in your house. Nobody should be thinking of ABA that way. Um, certainly, there is going to be a portion of ABA with most younger kids where there's going to be that DTT element where you are going to be learning something in a very specific way, but that should never be the be-all, end-all for your ABA program. Uh, we, our jargon today was NET, and we said earlier this morning that to do really good quality ABA therapy, it's going to be a very specific, child-specific mix of that DTT and NET. But to get to the heart of it, I, you know, I, I want to go back over the fact that apparently Autism Speaks is saying at least 25 hours, at least 25 hours from a quality ABA provider. So, um, and, I, and I would venture that the reason why they're saying at least 25 hours is because the studies that have come back that have shown how effective ABA can be with all of our kids, by the way, uh, not just the, the children who are more profoundly affected, not just the children who are high functioning, but the best window, usually the studies are showing between 25 and 40 hours, right? But the vast majority of those studies show between 30 and 40 hours. So as a parent, I just like to say to other parents, make sure you're getting 30, at least 30. Um, and, and if Autism Speaks is saying 25 from uh, a quality AB provider and 15 from a parent, uh, you know, I understand why, because that would be the absolute least amount that you wanted uh, of therapy, that 25 hours. But take a look at what they're saying as well, the other 15 coming from the parent. We want to try to get to 40.
that's the be all end all. We want to try to get to 40. You're never going to start in the first week and go to 40, especially with the little ones. You need to ramp up over time to get to that. Uh, and as Dr. Nadowski was pointing out, you have to take into consideration the child has to get rest, they have to eat, and a good ABA provider is going to take that into consideration. And it has to be reinforcing for the child. So a good ABA provider is going to make sure that they have lots of breaks where they're uh, getting to play and that they're staying interested and focused. That's A program is going to look really different for a two-year-old than it's going to look for a four-year-old and it's going to look really different for an eight-year-old, right? But that's the criteria. We want to make sure that we're getting the child engaged and that they're having fun. Rule number one, if it's not reinforcing, we're not going to keep doing it. So it's got to be of interest to our kids. Um, a couple of different things that I want to address here. We've gotten a, a question that somebody wrote in about a mentor. They said Temple Grandin is always suggesting that a person with autism have a mentor in their special interest, but she never seems to tell how to get someone to be one's mentor. You know what? I'm going to ask her for advice about that the next time I talk to her. My special interest is veterinary medicine and becoming a vet myself in the future. I've tried volunteering at local vets' offices, but everyone I have asked doesn't need volunteers at the moment, and they always say that the building is too small. I don't want to just volunteer. I want a mentor. How do I get one? Okay, and every circumstance is going to be different, right? But a um, couple of things that you consider is that you're probably going to have to ask a lot of people and a lot of people are going to say no. I don't know where you live and I don't know how many veterinary medicine outlets there are. You know, if, if you're living in a small town and there's one vet and you've asked that vet and they've said no, you're going to feel like you've hit a dead end. But remember that the world is this big, beautiful, global place and you and I are having this conversation right now, right? And it's entirely possible that there is someone who is in veterinary medicine who would be willing to talk to you via Skype every once in a while, right? But you're going to have to ask a lot of people before in all likelihood before you get someone who's a good fit because when you get a mentor you want it to be a good fit i would give you some suggestions though of going to wrongplanet.net and going on one of the forums there and putting it out to people i don't know what your age is right and so i don't be careful about giving people your private information but you could go on there and and if you are under the age of 18 have your parent help you and go on and say i'm looking for someone to be a mentor uh, that is in veterinary medicine. Now, there might be somebody who is on the spectrum who gets it and knows how important it is for you to have a mentor who has is making their livelihood in veterinary medicine and would love to help you to do that. Or maybe there's somebody who's there that is a family member of somebody who is working in the field of veterinary medicine. So I would start there and, and see if you can get any kind of a response, but also look in and around your area if there are more vets that you can ask. And let people know, like you're telling me, and now it's going to be on my radar. The next time I talk to somebody who is involved in veterinary medicine, I'm going to be saying, hey, would you ever be interested in being a mentor to somebody? And I do love that we live at a time that they don't have to live in the same neighborhood as you for that to be effective. But 
I think it's remarkable that that's what you want to do and that you're already thinking about having a mentor. We should all have mentors, right? Uh, a fabulous, fabulous thing to do. Keep us posted and I'll keep my ears and eyes open as well. But check out wrongplanet.net and see if there's somebody there who's got a suggestion of somebody that they already know who would be interested in helping you out. All right, we've got a bunch of other questions that are here and uh, a lot of them I'm gonna save for Dr. Tarbox. I will say um, that uh, one of our viewers has written in and says that her son's therapists use very specific data sheets to track progress. I, I think all ABA providers do, um, and that they will share them with you. They will, and if you already have programs in place, then it, they'll show you exactly how to use the form and they'll train you to use the form. They absolutely will. Um, and she says that she uses the same data sheets that they use to help track and that they actually, she turns them in to his program manager and and they add him to his graph so that it counts. I think that's remarkable. Uh, and maybe for a data sheet, I can create my own. It has really helped her to follow what her son's therapists do. So I really, really appreciate you writing that in. And, you know, uh, there are a lot of things now, uh, like on skills, it, um, where it tracks the progress for you and, and it can be added to the graphs that way too. So lots of different ways to do this. I think the willingness just has to be there. And sometimes I'm a dollar short on the willingness to track, but maybe perhaps today, I think I'm convinced now. All right, we're going to take a break and we're going to come back with Jonathan, Dr. Jonathan Tarbox. So stick with us. When you find out you're having a boy, you always think like, oh, he's going to play football, he's going to do this and that. And then when he's diagnosed, all those things get washed away. It's like that piece that's always in the back of your mind, you know, where is he, what is he doing, is he safe? We really didn't know what we were dealing with. I wish that they could have directed me a little bit more and provided me some information. I was a young mom. I didn't know what it was like to raise a boy despite a boy with autism. Hundreds of thousands of families are not getting the help they need for their children with autism all around the country. Act Today is determined to bridge the gap. These families really have to go through a lot to get a grant. The application process isn't easy. The records, the diagnosis proof, they're really battling for their kids. So when we can give them a grant, it is so wonderful to see that they succeed in getting that help for their children. Our founder, Dr. Doreen Grampiche, is an amazing woman, and she is one of the world's foremost authority on behavior of children with autism. She's extremely knowledgeable, and she oversees every single grant we give. She is part of that process. People may think of autism care and treatment as simply schooling or therapy, but you know, we provide important safety supports, things like fencing, for example. The whole family's living in fear of that child running out into traffic. I recently delivered an iPad to a little boy with some of the apps that are out there for children with autism. Miracles happen. I got the iPad from ACT. From ACT, What yeah. did it say? Can you repeat that, Dustin? I got the iPad from that. We have helped so many military families. And when I think of these brave families that are fighting two battles, one to protect our country and one for the right treatment and care for their children, it, it breaks my heart. And I think we have to do more as a nation to help them.
There's not a day that doesn't go by that we don't think about it. Some people say, oh, he's normal. You don't see the battles that I see every single day. My husband does have to deploy, and when they get on that bus, that might be the last time that my kids ever see them. So I called, and they informed me that he had received the grant, which was like a blessing from above. I was just like speechless. I just started to cry because, you know, without it, we would, we would have been lost. The AT grant was a total miracle, and without that, we wouldn't be able to receive a service dog. So we're so appreciative what they've done for us as a family. Recently, Act Today funded a program for military children with autism in San Diego, the Inclusion Films program, which is run by Joey Travolta, and teaches uh, kids on the autism spectrum literal filmmaking skills. They learn how to make a movie. Are we ready? There you go, got it. Okay. Everything that goes into the process of making a film goes into everyday life. So they're learning life skills, they're learning to collaborate. It was really nice to know how much they were enjoying this camp and they're with people who are supporting them and are making them feel great about themselves and their differences and their similarities. And I get two kids that are working together and apart and together and apart, so it's an interrelationship as well as a camp and a learning experience. It's so fulfilling when I get letters. One stands out for me, a, a boy who was 14 with Asperger's, and we gave him a grant to go to a drama camp. He wrote to us and said, Dear Act Today, thank you for letting me belong for the first time in my life. These kids are remarkable. You know, we underestimate them. They're so knowledgeable, they're so capable, and we can change the life of a family, which means changing the life of a community. Welcome back to Autism Live. So thrilled to be here on this Thursday with Dr. Jonathan Tarbox. We call this Science Beat with Dr. Tarbox because we pick his scientific brain. If you've watched the show before, you know that he is uh, the head of research and development at the Center for Autism and Related Disorders, and he is the director of the Autism Research Group. So besides that, he has extensive experience working with individuals on the autism spectrum. So all the way around, you're just a great person for us to talk to on a regular well, basis. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. No, thank you, because I, I was just saying to Dr. Tarbox that I was in my kitchen the other night having not having my best parenting moment, and I stood there for a moment and I thought, what would Dr. Tarbox say? <laughs> and um, and I thought, well, Dr. Tarbox would be very disappointed in me right now, right? And, um, but then I shifted what I was doing, and it was different last night because I thought it before we got to that moment, that was my antecedent modification for myself, that I thought before I entered into the inter interaction with my son, what would Dr. Jo Jonathan Tarbox say? And and so it went better, surprisingly. <laughs> um, well, don't don't forget that I would also say to have some compassion for yourself too. I mean, it's not you know, it's no picnic, right? And uh, it's a struggle for all of us as parents, regardless, yes. you know. So it, it is. And but you know, I do I, I and it's funny, if somebody else said this, I would say, now don't do that. But I say to myself, yes, but I have it so much easier than everybody else. Uh, because my son is doing so well and has done so well Very that lucky. I'm working on things that, you know, we have quality problems now. So I need to find my gratitude button and and slap that on and uh, just hit that from time to time and go right the gratitude button. Um, but that's kind of what I want to segue into talking about is 
why do some kids do better and why do some kids learn things a little bit faster? Right. Um, because our kids are all individuals and we do a lot of comparison. Right. Uh, of comparing you can't help in, it. Uh, in the autism community about, you know, two kids get the exact same treatment. I mean, right. it's never the exact same thing, right? But similar hours, um, even from the same provider, live in the same area and they progress at a different rate. Right. And I, I'm sure that there isn't enough research, um, That's right. but. Is there some research that can give us some clues as to why? A little bit, yeah. But but the, the short answer to your question is there, there really isn't enough research. And, you know, there's a million, like everything else in autism, there's a million theories, right, as, as, as to why uh, one child is going to do uh, learn particularly quickly, whereas another child might be really severely challenged uh, to learn even the simplest skills. Um, and the, the truth of the matter is we don't know. Okay. Uh, but the one thing we do want to avoid, so first of all, I'll give you the answer of what what not to blame it on is okay. don't pick, just as a general rule, don't pick something that's going on inside the kid's head or inside the kid's genetics. Just don't just don't go there. And okay. I'll tell you why. Because it can't help you do anything useful about All right. it. Okay? So here's some things to avoid. Don't blame it on mental retardation or intellectual disability. Okay? If you do that, it's a brick wall. What that's saying is there's nothing I can do about it. And right. we know that that's not true for anyone, no matter okay. how severely affected, okay? Don't blame it on genetics, right? Because again, there's nothing we can do about that. Right. So Can't all of those that. things could even play a part. It's possible, right? right. But, but A, we have no idea. We have no way of measuring any of that uh, and what effect any of those things have on your child's learning rate. And even more importantly, there's nothing we can do about it. So yeah. just put those in a trash bin, bury it in your backyard, whatever. Those are right. not reasons or excuses or explanations that are useful to us as parents. Okay, not useful. But when we look at things, and, and earlier in the program today, we talked with Dr. Del Nadowski about why it's important to track progress sure. and do course corrections so that we make sure that we're being the most efficient, effective team of people working with an individual. Um, you know, when we're not seeing the progress, first of all, we have to deal with the expectations, the idea right. of how much progress should we see, and if we're not seeing the amount of progress that we thought we were going to see, what do we do then? Right. Great. Uh, great question. So the answer to that could fill a whole, you know, semester-long university course, and right. it does. Uh, but uh, so just a sort of a short list of tips would be um, the number one thing with ABA is always motivation, right? ABA is a science of making learning fun, right? We kind of forget that sometimes. It's about it's a science of how to make people motivated to learn and how to cause learning to occur. And so um, the number one thing is motivation. If, if your child is not interested or excited to learn, if they're not having fun and seeming engaged in the process of learning from the therapist, that's your number one red flag. Okay. It is the job of the ABA therapy team to engage your child and motivate your child in a way that is interesting and exciting to the child. Not what the therapist thinks the kid should want to do, right. but what the kid actually cares about and is actually interested in. That's the very first thing they've got to do. Okay, so if, if we're not seeing progress, we've got to look at that and that, say, that would be the first is, thing to look the, at. is this individual engaged? Is there a reward that's big enough for that's them? That's meaningful to, to the child. Okay. Yeah. And so, you know, there's sort of simple, non-technical ways of, of looking at that. One thing is when the therapist walks in the door, by and large, the child should get excited. Yeah. The child should look at the therapist and they should, you know, you should be able to see it on their face. Wow, I get to do something fun now. Or I get to do something boring, but at least I get an awesome reward, right? Yeah. Um, but some eagerness to interact with the therapist. If that's completely absent or even really lacking, that's telling you the therapist is not doing the proper job of motivating the child, of building the relationship with the child that's based on 
positive reinforcement and motivation and fun. That's the number one thing. Now, that being said, that doesn't mean that every single day the child's happy-go-lucky and everything's right. fine. Obviously not, right? right? But we're talking about it as an overall pattern here. How does your child interact with a the therapist? Are they excited to see him? Do they interact? Do they do they act as though they're excited to to, to interact with the therapist? Yeah, that's the number one question. And if if as a pattern, the answer to that is no or not so much, then that's the first thing to look at. And, and it really takes me back because I, I remember early on, I always tell about the fact that the doorbell would ring and my son would be doing something and the doorbell would ring and he would go, Pidu, it's Pidu. And right. he would run to the door and he would skip like on his little toes to the door, almost like he was floating because he couldn't wait to get to the door. And he would jump up and down when he would see that it was Pidu. Right. Now, there were certain therapists that he was not as delighted to see. Of course, of course. Right? Yeah. But he he wasn't hiding behind the couch when those right. therapists came either. That's right. And and there, there's going to be certain topics or certain subjects, certain lessons that your kid is not excited to oh, work yeah. on, even with the best therapist in the world, yeah. because those uh, lessons are very challenging or maybe boring or frustrating. That's yeah. that's natural. And there's going to be certain days when your kid's not into it. But yeah. as a pattern, they should be. And now a couple examples that everyone should be familiar with from their everyday life is, um, let's say a teacher, a good teacher. It's the same thing. A good teacher, uh, when the kid comes into class, they're kind of excited to see him and you know that yeah of course they'd rather be at home playing obviously right. but given that they can't do that class is kind of fun and learning is kind of fun and interesting right same thing with a good coach right if yeah. a coach is doing a great job motivating the players when the team shows up for practice they're kind of excited to see the coach right they're not just hanging their head saying mom I don't want to do it I don't want to go right and if your kid is acting like that you kind of ask yourself well is this really the right activity for my kid or is that the right coach for my kid or is that the right same exact thing with ABA Interesting. We really have to start to look at these things because if those things aren't in place, that's the first ideal place to try right. to change some things right. so that we can see more progress. And, and you know, it's not magic. We have a science of how to fix this issue in ABA, yes. right? We know how to make reinforcers more powerful. We know how to identify reinforcers that the kid really cares about. Right. We know how to build the child's motivation into the learning and teaching uh, process. So it's not like, it's not just, oh, he's a bad therapist. No, it's the therapist is not doing the procedures necessary to build motivation. Right. to build that relationship. And as a parent, we do have the ability to, depending on your rapport with the individual therapist or your supervisor, or the next time you go to your clinic or whatever you call it, when you sit down with a whole team, you can bring it up and say, you know, here's what's happening. Before right. you guys come to the door, he or she is like not wanting to see you. And right. I think we need to change that. Right. Throw it out on the table. If they all go, well, it's because you're a child, you need to be with a new AB, ABA provider. Right. Like hands exactly. down, that's like cut and dried, whoof, time to fire people. And right. we know how to do that too, right? <laughs> um, but they should, the correct response should be absolutely, let's figure out how we can have this child be more engaged. Right. And they should start asking you about more questions about what do they love or having a discussion amongst themselves about how can we motivate this child in this way. If that's happening, you're in the right place. That's exactly right. Okay. We're going to take a break and we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about this, but we've got some questions that you guys have written in both on the live feature and on the Facebook page. So stick with us. Skills is an online program that provides assessment, curriculum, positive behavior support planning for challenging behavior, 
and progress tracking, and it does this all in one place. The skills assessment and curriculum addresses eight areas of development, which even includes advanced higher level areas such as executive functions and cognition, which pretty much makes skills the only ABA-based set of curricula for teaching more complex skills, things like problem solving, planning, self-management, perspective taking, and even inferring and predicting others' private events. Skills is a four-step system. Step one is to add the child to your account. Step two is to start assessment. The skills assessment is the only ABA-based assessment with psychometric research demonstrating the language subscale to have excellent reliability. Every area of human functioning and typical child development from infancy to adolescence was researched, making the skills assessment the most comprehensive of its kind in the world, and we're quite proud of that. Skills is easy to use. Simply click Start Assessment and begin answering questions, or simply type in a keyword find specific activities to assess, and add activities to treatment. Step 3. Choose activities. Once you've completed the assessment, Skills selects from a pool of 4,000 activities categorized by age, level, and skill type to provide you with exactly those activities each child needs. Start by choosing a curriculum, then a lesson, and finally an activity. Click the information icon to view prerequisites, ages in which targets develop, examples, and IEP goals. Click the video icon to watch a short video. Once you've identified an activity you want to teach, adding activities to treatment is a snap. Step 4. Start treatment. Here you can access customizable activity lesson details, add your own customized targets and exemplars, and edit an activity status such as introducing or mastering it. You can even print handouts such as worksheets, tracking forms, visual aids, and other materials. Skills also offers multiple progress charts, mapping curriculum progress, lesson progress, and cumulative number of activities and targets mastered over time. The Skills Language Curriculum is categorized by verbal behavior type so that users can identify progress for verbal operants, such as echoics, mans, tacks, and interverbals. Skills is one of the only programs that provides the ability to write behavior intervention plans, or BIPs, for challenging behavior. With just a few clicks, the outline of the behavior intervention plan is written for you and ready to be printed and implemented. You can learn more about Skills today and get started by visiting us at www.skillsforautism.com or you can call us at 877-975-4559. Skills. Progress starts here. Welcome back to Autism Live. I'm Shannon Penrod, and we are here with Dr. Jonathan Tarbox. He is the head of research and development for the Center for Autism and Related Disorders and the director of the Autism Research Group. And I love this time on Thursdays because we have the opportunity to have him answer some of your questions, and you guys have been writing in overwhelmingly. Uh, so we have a question here. Hi, Shannon and Dr. Tarbox. My son is 39 months and receiving 40 hours of ABA through CARD. Woohoo. Uh, lately, he has been displaying autistic behaviors that he has never um, that he never had before, such as looking at his hands, spinning, tippy toe walking, scripting. Is it normal to gain these behaviors while getting intensive, high quality ABA? I, I thought the autistic behaviors he had were the only ones we need to work on. In your experience, does this mean that he will regress? He is doing well in all other aspect, aspects, but this new hurdle has gotten me really worried. Thank you and God bless. Can I just say, 
I always think about that old Jerry Lewis movie that he is uh, laying on a, a massage table and the massage therapist comes in and he says, I'm really, really tense. And the massage, massage therapist goes over and he massages the leg. He says, does it, does it feel better? And he says, yes, it feels better. And then his arm goes, Tung! and now his arm has got all the uh, all the tension, right? right. And, the, and so the massage therapist massages the arm and now his other leg goes out, right? And it becomes a thing of, and as an autism parent, I sometimes feel that way. Right, yeah. Right, about yeah. like, ah, uh, ah. Uh, you know, it's like yeah. I'm putting my hands on all these things and now a new thing starts because he grew right. and he progressed. And so now he's got a new thing and ah, I thought I was done. That's right. Um, <laughs> and then I hear they turn into teenagers. Right. <laughs> Somebody help me. Yeah. Stop the insanity. Uh, so that's, you know, the first thing that comes to mind because I kind of remember a moment feeling this way as right. a parent. Right. Help us. Okay. Well, and, you know, the truth is as ABA providers, we often feel that same thing too, right? Because okay. we're trying to, you know, put our fingers on all the holes and the dam or whatever too and, and you know, ones, everything all at once. New right? ones crop and up. new ones crop up. Uh, and so, first of all, um, I would say, you know, at, you know, as, as you know, you're getting the right treatment for your child, which is fantastic. It's really lucky and really great. You're in the right place. Sounds like he's making a lot of progress which is fantastic. Um, and, and yes, it is normal, uh, and of course I don't know your child individually, but it is normal for kids on the spectrum to develop new forms of stereotypy or new forms of repetitive behavior. Um, and oftentimes it is when you get kind of one under control, they figure out another way to get self-stimulatory or repetitive stimulation. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it is um, a long road. Um, decreasing stereotypy or repetitive behaviors, as we often say on this show, is one of the toughest challenges of treating autism spectrum disorders. It it's one of the challenges that takes the longest, um, but progress can be made. And it's not an issue of, is he regressing? Of, of course, I don't know your child individually, but, but just based on your description, I would not call that regression at all. It's kind of just developing another habit. Is it an appropriate habit? No. Would we like the habit to go away? Yes. But people develop new habits all the time, right? And including kids on the spectrum. And a lot of those habits tend to be repetitive, kind of weird looking or stereotype behaviors. Mm -hmm. um, and those behaviors too can be decreased and can be replaced. So the focus should always be, just as it always is with repetitive behavior or self-stimulatory behavior, the focus should always be on replacing those behaviors with other things the child can do in their downtime that produce some kind of satisfaction or some kind of automatic reinforcement, but that is more appropriate. So, you know, you know, the classic examples are instead of running around, engaging in stereotypy, jumping on a trampoline is better mm -hmm. or playing tag is better, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of, uh, you know, playing with saliva or something, um, you know, playing at a water table is better, right? So, so some other behavior that produces stimulation that is enjoyable to your child, but is more socially appropriate. Some other way to keep busy that produces some satisfaction. It's not good enough to just expect the kid to have his hands down, right? Because that doesn't produce any enjoyment. Yeah. There's a reason why your child's doing these behaviors. It's because it feels good and it produces enjoyment in his life, yeah. right? And so you've got to focus on um, establishing other behaviors that can also produce some kind of stimulation, but are more appropriate. Yeah. And I would imagine, and, and we always say on this show, nobody can give child-specific advice, no one on the show, because we don't have enough information. But I, I, when I think about if I were to start a new program, something right. that I was going to learn that was going to be difficult for me, I, I would imagine that my anxiety would ramp up a little bit. Um, and if it filled so much of my day that I had, and I had an old system of doing something that coped for me, mm -hmm. and I didn't have as much time to do that, I would be looking for other ways to fill Right. that need as well. And so you know, it kind of makes sense to me. It actually does make sense. And if and, and if you take an analogy from a typically developing adult like you or I, 
you know, what are our favorite activities that kind of help us blow off steam? Maybe watch TV, maybe read a good novel, maybe go for a run if you like exercise, whatever. Uh, what if people started taking those away, right, yeah. from our lives? What would we do? We would find other ways to yes. blow off steam and to, and to kind of unwind or relax. And that's essentially what your child's doing. You can't blame them. It's a normal thing to do. And yes, it is an ongoing process. And yes, you will have to continue to... Uh, decrease those behaviors and replace them with other ways of uh, producing, you know, satisfaction or automatic reinforcement, whatever you want to call it. And it will take a while. And I just want to thank you for assuming that I'm typically developing because I think you're wrong. <laughs> and, and, I, and I love this scenario that the way I deal with stress is by taking a walk or reading a good book. This is hilarious to me. Uh, it's all very, very funny. Um, <laughs> thanks. Um, we won't even go into. Uh, <laughs> you know, but that's wonderful. That's a good picture. That's what I should, should strive for from now on. Those will be, right. be good replacement behaviors. Those will be good replacement behaviors for the things that I am doing that are all completely wrong. You and the um, rest of us. Right. Okay. It's a good story he's telling here. But, you know, it, it brings home the fact that we don't always pick the thing that's the most effective. That's it probably right. would be good at reducing my stress if I took a walk right. instead of watching some horrible crime show on television that makes me more upset afterwards. Right? right. But well, I'm, and, and I am an adult who has, you know, free choice and can pick things, and yet I don't pick the taking the walk. Well, and, you know, it's a fact of the human condition. Humans generally don't pick the behaviors that are in their own best interests because they don't always produce the most immediate uh, gratification. Right. right. And so for the same reason why someone might have a cigarette instead of uh, doing yoga, right, to decrease their stress, right. the cigarette produces an immediate consequence, an immediate change for them, especially if they're addicted, yeah. uh, whereas other behaviors don't necessarily. And honestly, it's the same thing for kids on the spectrum. Okay. Hand flapping or twirling or spinning or spinning objects produces an immediate uh, uh, consequence for them that feels good. But I go back to that, you know, it is going to be stressful on your child as it's going to be stressful for you too you're going to have a bunch of people sure. coming in the home the whole schedule gets flipped um, things that were acceptable before are no longer acceptable and that right. feels funny and sometimes if you didn't have a say in it um, even if you did have a say in it you're probably feeling some of those growing pains I'm just going to imagine in your family so stress is going to go up That's right. Um, but we go back to over time if we all find that it's really worthwhile mm -hmm. and that there is a good enough reward, right. that will mo modulate some of the stress as well. That's right. And, and actually, there's not a lot of research on it, but the small amount of research that has been done shows ac actually no increase in stress in ABA programs. And it's probably because of that. Because yes, there's higher demands on you in terms of what you have to do and what uh -huh. you have to plan for, but you also are taking control of the situation. Right. And you're and also your hope taking positive steps towards yeah. doing something productive and practical and tangible, and your hope increases. So, yeah, it, it can offset it. In fact, we have data um, internally um, at CARD on family stress um, and parent reports of stress, and those actually consistently go down over time the longer the family is with, uh, the longer their kid is in treatment. I can absolutely see where that would happen. Um, but as uh, you know, and all those things to be kept in mind, you still can't just go we'll wait and see if these behaviors no, straighten no, no. out. You need to be it's, proactive about them. You need to be proactive and it's a constant process. And, and honestly, it's kind of a never ending process, right? Like even when your kid goes to college, you might be reminding him, hey, maybe you shouldn't, when you feel stressed out, maybe you shouldn't be just playing video games by yourself. Maybe you should go hang out with friends. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Like honestly, right. and you know. But we know that a bunch of college, ki college kids are choosing that right. to sit at Absolutely. home and play 
play the game. Uh, Okay. So, and, and of course, because you're with card, make sure that you're talking about it at the clinics and say, and voice your concerns always at the clinic. You know, the first 10 minutes would always be me talking about my Mm -hmm. concerns. Here's what I'm worried about. Here's what I saw, you know, here, uh, you know, and I would be, I would just dump that in the middle of the room and then we would all move on. And (laughs) and, you know, the thing, the important thing to keep in mind is parents are not being naggy when they express their opinions or concerns in an ABA program. It is their job to do so. Parents who don't do that are not getting the most out of the treatment. And a good ABA supervisor will ask you your opinion and they'll genuinely want it. They're not just being polite. They want to know how you're thinking or how you're feeling and what you're thinking about. Yeah. And that's another way that you know you're in the right place. Really important to be checking for ourselves too about how do we know we're in, you know, we track progress in our kids, track progress for ourselves. How do we know we're in the right place? Sort of along uh, the same kinds of lines, we had somebody write into the show and we started answering this question first with um, Dr. Grampache a week ago. A mom who wrote in and said she's concerned she's got a child on the spectrum that has been having quality ABA therapy and has made so much progress that it's just been thrilling. But their younger child, who I believe is four, I wrote back to her today and said we're going to be, because she wrote a follow-up, is now mimicking some of the behaviors from the brother. Mm -hmm. And we did um, talk with Dr. Grampache about that, and Dr. Grampache said, you know, can't, we can't know child specific, but we, we will frequently see kids modeling other kids' behavior. Some of it is just to learn and grow. Some of it is, could potentially be for attention. Mm-hmm. Um, Mom wrote back and said um, that, you know, the thing is, is that um, he's he's doing it so much and he's even doing it at school now okay. um, that she's really deeply concerned about it. Um, he said so much of our time, and they've been trying to give more attention. Um, he, she says he went from being at home with me all day to being in school all day. And when he is home, much of our time is focused on other things, dinner, homework, etc. But I've been telling my husband for months that he's looking for attention. I've also noticed that he hasn't only picked up things from his brother, but from kids at school. And we've tried sure spending special time with him but he's still doing these things and we've come such a long way with his brother in these issues and now I'm feeling like I'm going backwards right right so I I told her that we would talk about it a little bit more and I asked her for some more information but um, she hasn't written back yet about that but and besides just giving attention, uh-huh. um, and and we talk about this a lot on the show about how sometimes when a child is doing a behavior, you want to you know helicopter mom course, and say yeah. stop doing that, course, right? Yeah. That isn't necessarily always the most effective thing to do. Right, that's right. Uh, as I need you to come to my kitchen and remind me on a daily basis, <laughs> right? Right. Let's just be honest that nobody can do this right 100% of the time. Of course. Nobody. But if we can hit it, if we can make progress and hit it, you know, yesterday we did it 40% of the time, maybe we can do 42% right, today. Exactly. So exactly. what uh, what more can we say to this mom to help get these behaviors under control right. before it gets any worse? Well, and you know, it's kind of a good reminder for us all to remember that um, not just kids on the spectrum misbehave, everybody misbehaves. Yeah. It's totally normal and typical for children to misbehave sometimes yeah. and especially to do behaviors that push your buttons, right? Yes. It's completely normal, right? Does that mean we want to just let it happen and let it progress? No, of course not, right? We want to nip it in the bud. Um, But it is, it's also important to acknowledge that it's normal. Now, um, you know, like any, like, you know, the general advice that we always give is set real clear expectations about what's acceptable and what isn't. Don't nag. 
just make sure your kid knows what the expectations are. So maybe you say it once a day or something, right? If it's a particular weird behavior he's doing that's driving you nuts, uh, you say, well, that's not acceptable. We're not going to do that behavior, okay? Or you can do that behavior when you're in your room alone, whatever yeah. it is, okay? All right, so you say it once. They know it. They get it, right? That's it. That means next time they do it, you don't need to remind them again not to do it. They already know. You told them, okay? So next time they do it, there needs to be a consequence that they don't like. And it doesn't have to be punishment, but it has to not be something that they like, okay? So the absence of something that they like. So absence of your attention, if they want your attention, right? You cannot go over there and keep reminding them to stop doing the behavior. If they already know they're not supposed to, you don't need to tell them again. Okay, so the here, only thing you're doing is helping them do it more if you go and tell them to stop. Here's the sticky on that one, is that you want to go over and say, I'm not going to pay attention to you right, right, right now, yeah, exactly. because that's a consequence right. for you doing this. So right. I won't be paying attention to you for the next five minutes, and then right. you go, Oh, Oops, I, I just, just gave the attention right. I said I wasn't going to right. get. Or you really honestly feel like, well, maybe he just forgot and he needs a reminder. Right. Or, you know, maybe he has kind of a reasonable point. I am kind of not paying enough attention to him. Maybe I should go talk to him for a little bit or negotiate with him right. when I can pay attention. Or maybe plan, right? No, none of that should be occurring when the challenging behavior happens. When the inappropriate behavior happens, there is nothing that the kid likes. Nothing, right. okay? And I'm not, again, we're not talking about punishment here. We're right. just saying don't give anything that right. the kid wants, whether it's your attention, whether it's their favorite TV show, their favorite food, taking a break, you know, whatever. Okay, so when the behavior happens, that's telling you, oops, too late. You should right. have given them what they want before. Right. Too late now. Okay, that's all right, though. Not the end of the world. Right. Don't beat yourself up. It's going to happen. Just don't give it now. Right. So it's not the time to nag. If you want to give your kid attention or if you want to negotiate with them about the rules or if you want to have a discussion with them about respect or responsibility or the house rules, all of that is critical and it's great, but it needs to happen before the behavior occurs, okay. not right after the behavior occurs. Okay, so here is here's what the mistake that I make on a frequent basis, and we'll see if anybody else does. So I think to myself, okay... You know, I, I'm, I'm, you know, if this happens, then I'm, you know, if, it, like for instance, my son will yell from upstairs, go, mom, 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 you know, and I've talked to him three million times about, right. you know, you have legs, they work, come down the stairs and talk to me so that we're not standing and screaming in the house, right? And, you know, maybe five times in the day, I'll say, please don't yell upstairs. And then I remember, no, just, like he got me talking to him he right. got what he wanted right. okay so then he'll yell and he'll yell and he'll yell and, and i'll think i'm not going to answer right eventually he will come downstairs right. right yes um so i'm i'm not responding eventually he does come downstairs right then two things that i will do wrong one i want to give a lecture lecture him right yeah, right about it, right? did you notice yeah. that i wasn't talking to you because and if you would just come downstairs the first time, but he did the right thing right right and i should yeah. reinforce it right. and not go back over the other thing and that is so physically really hard. hard for me it's extremely challenging because i want to point out and make sure right. that he learned it right. but i will blow it entirely because if he comes downstairs the thing that i want and says mom in a reasonable voice you lecture him. Yeah. i need right. to give a reward to right. that not, right. a lecture. not a lecture that's exactly it's such it's it a great hurts. example my shoulders. Right. And you know, that's why we say a lot of times when we do parent training, a lot of times what we say is the, the way that we normally are raised to think that we're supposed to interact with our kids is really a stumbling block. It's not going to, if we're doing our job right with misbehavior, managing misbehavior, it's not going to feel natural, okay. right? If we're doing what feels natural, then that means we're going to make the behavior happen more, right? Because right. we were already doing what, what right. came naturally and that's what helped <laughs> the behavior to persist to begin with. Uh, 
So by definition, you have to feel a little uncomfortable, right? Okay. So you're going to stand there in the kitchen thinking, oh, I really want to tell him to stop yelling. I really want to tell him to stop yelling. That means you're doing the right thing. If you're standing there <laughs> feeling kind of uncomfortable, right? Right. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't be happy and you should be uncomfortable in your life. It means right then is not the time to have the discussion, right? So the next day before he starts yelling, maybe remind him of the rules. Hey, man, you know, next time you, you really need my attention and you're upstairs, just remember to come down and get me, okay? Right. And I will absolutely help you if you come down and get me. I'm not going to ignore you. But if you yell for me from upstairs, I'm not going to hear it. I'm right. just not going to hear it. So I'm not going to respond. And then he is going to test it a few times. And if you're consistent, the behavior will go away. He's a smart kid, right? right. There's no way that he won't remember. Right. He'll, he just needs to come in contact with that a few times. But then on top of that, when he does appropriately come downstairs, even if he yelled for 10 minutes up right. there, right. I need to reward that behavior. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, just <sighs> act as though the 10 minutes Nothing didn't happened. Happen. It yeah. did not happen. And let it go. Right. And not revisit it later on that night. Right. And or, we all or even feel like if, we have to talk about or it. Or even if you are going to revisit it some other time later, that would still be better than doing it right then. You know right. what I mean? Right, right. It's hard. It's, this it's is hard, hard work. It really um, is. But it has a great payoff when we can actually do it. Right. Okay, so making sure, and I love the phrase that you guys always use about catch them doing something good. That's right. Catch that them being good. Praise is the single greatest tool that we yeah. have at our disposal. Think of it as the opposite of the police. The police are looking out for you to do something wrong. You're looking out for your kid to do something good. There you go. You're going to try to catch them every time you can doing something good. And it should be a surprise. If they're already asking you, that means you didn't catch them early enough. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, so, and, and that sometimes we can turn behavior around just with that and not Absolutely. have to go through the hard part Absolutely. if we just praise them doing good things. And also it turns our day around. It really does. And nothing is going to make you feel better than rewarding yeah. your child and sharing a moment of, of praise and love and interaction with your child when there isn't a problem, right? Yeah. When everything's fine, it makes everyone feel good. It's great. Yeah. Really remarkable. We have to take a break, but we have more questions from you at home. Oh, we're out of time. It's out the time. end of the show. We All have right. more that things to talk about. Uh, I'm bummed about that. One quick thing. Uh, we were talking before that there is science to show that kids who are high functioning still need the same prescription that's amount correct. of time. Yes. So I'm not misquoting. No, that's correct. If you correct. have a high functioning child, that does not mean that they need less therapy. It means they need the exact same amount that we were diagnosing and, and, and prescribing for everybody else. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Really important because I know a big a lot of questions today about how much time is enough. Right. Right. Um, so your child being high functioning does not change that equation. All right, we are out of time. I want to thank you so much for being here it's with us. A pleasure. And remember, we'll continue to keep questions, and you guys can keep writing them in. We will be here next week with Dr. Jonathan Tarbox, but then you will not have the opportunity to ask him questions for two weeks after that. So if you have questions for Dr. Tarbox, make sure that you're writing them in all this next week. Next week. Week. It's Valentine's Day week, and our whole topic is love. <laughs> We're going to be talking about all kinds of things having to do with love. And love, of course, can take lots of different forms, uh, whether we're showing love to our children, whether we're teaching them how to appreciate things other than what they love, and using the, the benefit of things that they already love to help them to learn more things. Because if they love something, that's going to be a motivator if they're, they're going to want to work for that, right? So we're going to be talking about all all that and we're going to have a lot of wonderful guests starting on uh, Tuesday 
We will have Alex Plank, we will have Nava Paskowitz, and Matt Asner will be here talking with us about love, both from the perspective of parents who have kids on the autism spectrum finding love. And um, Alex is going to be talking with us about love when you are on the autism spectrum, because lots of people um, have, have found love on the autism spectrum. No reason to think that they couldn't or wouldn't, right? So we're going to be sh sharing some of those great stories. And then Dr. Doreen Grampache will be with us on Wednesday. We have a fabulous guest for you uh, during Let's Talk Autism with Shannon and Nancy, a young man who is shaking things up and singing around the country and uh, truly remarkable and inspirational. All that plus Dr. Tarbox and Dr. Del Nadowski on Thursday. We're out of time. It's been a wonderful week. Thank you so much for being with us. Until next week, give your kiddos a hug from me. Bye-bye for now. <laughs>